It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, October 21st, 2009. Do or die for the Dodgers tonight. It's feeling a lot like last year. Statistically, it don't look good. And the Phillies, they are a really good team. <sighs> Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. We do not have the freedom to just make stuff up about God. Now, people are people in America are going to go, well, it's a free country. The kingdom of God is not a free country in that in the sense where you can just make stuff up about God. So keep in mind, if you claim to be a Christian and you live in a Western democracy or a Western Republic, um, your uh, freedom of speech does not give you freedom before God to just make stuff up about God and stick it into the scriptures and consider it to be, voila, Christianity. It's not, okay? We work from the idea here, God's word is true. And it is, <laughs> it is the revealed word of God. And if you say something that contradicts it or just ain't in there, uh, you have some splaining to do, and uh, we have every right to point out the fact that at that point you've deviated from the scriptures and what you're teaching contradicts God's word, just plain and simple. And uh, depending on what's at stake, um, what, what the doctrine is, you, you may or may not be a heretic. I mean, it just might be that you're heterodox, um, but at the worst case scenario, you, uh, the, you're a full-blown heretic. And uh, we don't have a problem here doing the politically incorrect job of pointing that out and uh, and taking the flack for it. That's what we do. We are pirates here at Pirate Christian Radio, and we do understand that when we unleash with a theological or doctrinal broadside from uh, from our particular pirate ship, uh, that from from time to time there will be those who will actually fire back. That's okay. That's all right. It's all part of... <clears throat> how things need to be done. All right, today's program, it, it might be, well, I, I, every time I notice this, every single time I say, you know, today's program will be shorter, I end up going three hours. And, and so I hesitate to, to make any promises about the program being shorter, although based upon the stories that I'm covering, I may actually end up starting the sermon review in the first hour, although that kind of depends. Anyway, so let's see here. Uh, what we have on deck today, uh, we've got news from uh, Joshua Mills of Extreme Prophetic or New Wine Ministries um, about miraculous teeth whitening. Apparently, the Holy Spirit is uh, going, uh, going around whitening people's teeth. <laughs> I am not making that up. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, man. Just... This is an example of what I'm saying about making stuff up about God. These people, I, they are not going to be um, happy with what's hap going to happen on the day of judgment if they don't repent of their sinfully wicked 
uh, rebellion against God and uh, teeth, miraculous teeth whitening. Apparently, the Holy Spirit is in the teeth whitening business. And uh, then we got a, I got a story from the Wall Street Journal on uh, the Vatican opening its doors for Anglican converts. Now, this is an interesting twist. And, uh, oh, man. And then Al Mohler has a great op-ed piece uh, basically asking the question, is the battle regarding homosexuality over? Well, uh, uh, retired Bishop John Shelby Spong seems to think so. And then... Uh, and then I'm going to revisit uh, something. Uh, I, I I did a sermon review a few weeks ago uh, from of from Shane Hips. We call it our pantheism twin spin. And uh, because it showed up in the sermon review section, there was something that he said that I want to tease out and bring forward, and uh, and basically make it a standalone segment here. And it's uh, Shane Hips uh, considers all religions to be valid and. Uh, why is this important? The reason why this is important is because Shane Hips has been called to be the uh, the co-pastor, uh, co-teaching pastor at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And, uh, I mean, that's out in the open now. Uh, Mars Hill has made their announcements regarding it. And uh, this has definite implications uh, in regards to uh, to what's going to be preached and, ta- and taught at Mars Hill Bible Church, but more importantly, it also shed some light on uh, Rob Bell's theology itself. Um, because I'll be I'll be blunt, I, I could be wrong on this, but I'll say uh, that I I have a ninety degree ninety uh, percent certainty. I'm ninety percent certain uh, that uh, Rob Bell is not. Um, in the dark regarding Shane Sipp's uh, theology, and the reason why he was chosen to teach there at Mars Hill Bible Church is because his theology actually mirrors or closely resembles Rob Bell's theology. So uh, we're going to bring that forward today, and then we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 11, and then uh, we've got a good sermon review today. This is a sermon by Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog, and uh, the name of the sermon is The Atrocity That Pleased God, The Atrocity That Pleased God, and uh, guaranteed you're going to hear the gospel on this one. So uh, make yourself comfortable. Please feel free to wear fuzzy bunny slippers if uh, the weather permits in your neck of the woods, wherever your neck of the woods would be. And, uh, and if you want to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, again, as always, we do not have a problem with that. Keep in mind, Jesus turned water into wine and uh, instituted communion uh, using wine and uh, himself even said that he was a drinker. That being the case, uh, we don't think that it's setting a bad example to say such things because otherwise, if that were the case, then Jesus set a very terrible example for us. All right. So with that in mind, um, it's... So every time we we do a piece from the uh, the folks over at Extreme Prophetic, uh, it is it is beholden to us to actually use uh, our fractured fairy tale music. So, <clears throat> ah yes, fractured fairy tales. Now, do you have yellow teeth? When you open your mouth, do children run and hide behind a couch in terror? Uh, Have you ever had anybody come up to you and say, man, them them are some ugly teeth, and, you know, the smell coming off of your mouth uh, would actually probably make a a fisherman, uh, you know, a high seas fisherman, uh, wretch and lose his lunch? Well, we've got good news. Um, 
from the folks over at Extreme Prophetic. Apparently, the Holy Spirit is into the um, is into uh, oral hygiene, miraculous oral hygiene, and um, I uh, <laughs> not making this up. Here's uh, Joshua Mills of New Wine Ministries and Extreme Prophetic on miraculous um, um, oral hygiene. We were in New Zealand several months ago, and we just began having some amazing meetings where God was just showing up. The glory would come into the meetings just like a smoke, like a cloud. And I remember- mm-hmm. Just like a smoke or a cloud. <clears throat> Makes you wonder, doesn't it? <laughs> One night, um, just so many miracles began breaking out. There was one lady in the meeting who um, God began touching, and she she smelled the fragrance of toothpaste in the meeting, and she was wondering, you know, why she would smell this fragrance of toothpaste. And she ended up going and looking in a mirror, and God had totally whitened all her teeth. She just got... So, so <laughs> let me see if I have this straight. God, the Holy Spirit, whitened this lady's teeth. Is anyone finding this just really hard to swallow? I, 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 I no examples of, you know, of miraculous um, oral hygiene miracles in the Bible. And by the way, I mean, think about it. I mean, that would be a time when it could really be used. I mean, that was the, the days before toothpaste, before toothbrushes. Uh, I mean, if you've ever seen people who live in third world nations, I mean. Uh, and they don't grow up using and or availing themselves of oral hygiene project, uh, products, well, their teeth are very uh, unique. Um, see, in Western countries, um, everyone pretty much has teeth that all look the same. They're all straight. They're you know, <clears throat> Well, in other countries where oral hygiene and dental care is not so prevalent, well, that's just not the case. So you would think that back in the, you know, 2,000 years ago, I mean, if God the Holy Spirit was ever going to uh, engage in oral hygiene miracles, uh, that uh, those miracles would have taken place, well, you know, um, back then. There's no recording uh, recorded oral hygiene miracles no, we don't have the uh, the story of the uh, the leper with the with the uh, with the bad teeth coming to Jesus. We continue her whole mouth clean, and that's like something that we used to see several years ago in the Arctic when we go into different communities and villages where they did not have. Uh, where's the Arctic, by the way? Y- you do know that n- if you, if it's anywhere near New Zealand, we're talking about the South Pole. Uh, there ain't nobody that lives down there have dentists and they didn't have dental care and we go into these communities and God be recreating teeth and you know there'd be silver and gold teeth that would come into people's mouths but there was also white teeth enamel teeth that God would put into people's mouths and straighten out teeth and correct the teeth and we would see the same hey, you're pulling my leg here dude just I'm, I'm just not you're not even selling this like you believe it yourself you know you're this is thing where God would come and whiten teeth and clean teeth in the Arctic because you know that wasn't something that they <laughs> God would come and whiten teeth in the Arctic. Is that to help you to blend with your surroundings so that you don't get killed by the Arctic polar bears? 
had access to just a supernatural move of God's spirit. And so it was amazing when we were in New Zealand and seeing some of these miracles happen. And then that meeting, there was, you know, someone that got healed in their leg and in their back. And God was giving me different names for people. I was calling out names and different illnesses. And, um, you know, we, we just go for it. And the glory was there and it was strong and just speaking to that glory. And there was one pastor in that meeting and God gave me a prophetic word. Uh, yeah, right. I'm sure he did. <clears throat> well, I'm sure you got a prophetic word, but it wasn't actually from Yahweh. It wasn't from the triune God, because your doctrine contradicts what God has revealed in his word, uh, Joshua. That means I don't have to believe a word of what you're saying, because you are blaspheming at this point, and you are lying and deceiving using God's name. I was going to take him on a trip, and it wasn't going to be a natural trip or by natural means, but he's going to be sent in the Holy Ghost. It's going to be divine, supernatural translation and transportation in the Holy Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I feel even right now that there's people that are going to be picked up right now and transported in the realm of the spirit. And uh, hang on. To, pack your bags, folks. You might be transported into the realm of the spirit while listening to this. So, you know. Uh, be sure to have your uh, your Holy Spirit bus pass with you. Being translated in the realm of the Spirit to the third heaven and to the nations, even right now, as you're watching. Notice uh, that uh, <clears throat> that as he's he's increasing the volume of his voice and and kind of running his words together quickly. I mean, that shows that he's really sincere and speaking from the Holy Spirit. I mean, isn't that the sign? Well, no, actually, this is just blasphemy. Divine supernatural glory falling on you and coming on you and lifting you up by the power of God and transporting you uh -huh. into divine destiny and divine purpose. You know, I think I have a chip in my tooth. Do you think the Holy Spirit can fix that? That night in New Zealand, as I began to minister over that pastor, God gave me a word that he was going to go on a trip, that he was going to take a trip. I didn't realize it was going to happen right away. He went out in the realm of the, in the spirit. He was slain in the spirit on the floor. And right there in the meeting, he was carried to Portugal. From no way. He was carried all the way to Portugal. From Auckland, New Zealand, all the way to Portugal. When he got to Portugal, uh -huh. he met a friend of his in... No way. I mean, did they maybe have, like, coffee there at a coffee shop in Portugal? Portugal, from New Zealand, who uh -huh. was also translated in the spirit. Yeah, to right. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Portugal. Yeah. And together, they begin receiving prophetic words. And no way, <laughs> dude. God began moving. This is like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure with in the spirit. With them in Portugal, he came back into the meeting that night and testified. No, really? Wow, this, uh, yeah, what was it you said about that glory cloud there, the smoke again? Of what God had done, and I believe that some of this is about to come on, on those of you that are watching right now. Uh, hold on, I should have warned you all. You, you let's see, I, I needed to put a disclaimer at the, at the beginning of this segment. Uh, warning, you could be transported in the spirit, uh, un, you know, basically involuntarily. Uh, right after God whitens your teeth, because that's really important before you get transported, is that you have good, clean oral hygiene prior to being transported in the spirit. That there's divine supernatural acceleration in the realm of the spirit. What does that sentence mean? Divine supernatural acceleration. So the Holy Spirit's one big accelerometer. Ezekiel said he lifted me up. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think he's rather tickled with himself. <laughs> In the realms of glory, Ezekiel began to fly. Yeah, he doesn't believe any of this. He's selling us. And Ezekiel was lifted by the Spirit of God. I believe that there's a lifting that's coming to the body in this day. The Bible says... I feel the lifting. Yeah, that's you lifting money out of people's wallets um, using this deception. That he is the glory and he is the lifter. And I believe he's coming to lift you up in this day to transport you and translate you into realms of the Spirit. Even as we experienced that night in Auckland, New Zealand, as we've traveled all over the world over the last several months, we've seen different ones being picked up and translated, transported, being transformed by the power of God. I believe that's for you right now. Just uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, right. Lift up your hands into the cloud. No, I, I, I won't. Now, just lift up your hands and receive what God's doing. I, I will receive nothing from you because the spirit by which you are operating is not the Holy Spirit, Joshua. You are operating through a a deceptive spirit, a, a, a spirit that comes from Satan, not from God. Because it goes beyond yourself. It moves beyond the natural into the realm of the divine, supernatural. Let that realm of God's spirit just come on you right now. And over Believe it or not, this whole video started with uh, divine dental whitening. All your natural ability, all your natural thinking, all your natural going and, and means of moving in the natural realm. Let him pick you up right now. Let him strengthen you in your inner man. Let him move you. Do you think he can strengthen the enamel in my teeth? You know, I, I hate having to go to the dentist. In your inner man. Let him propel you in the realm of the spirit. Well, maybe, maybe he can do that. You, he, maybe God can whiten my inner teeth, you know, from the inner realm rather than the outer realm of my teeth. Hallelujah. <laughs> no. This is... <sighs> yeah, again, we play it partly because it's frightening, shocking, and entertaining all at the same time. And our warning to people is this. When you have people like this that are claiming direct revelation from God, that somehow they're plugging into the Holy Spirit's light socket and getting direct power and revelation from him, um, you got to test everything they're saying against the Word of God. In this particular case, when it comes to Joshua Mills, Patricia King, uh, Gall, and all those other folks, they be lying to you because uh, their their doctrine completely contradicts the Word of God. These are nothing but a bunch of charlatans, hucksters, if you would. Uh, they're basically preying upon people in order to make a buck and making all kinds of outlandish claims and going on and on and on about the dreams and visions that they have, but never really talking about Christ and him crucified for our sins, pointing us to God's word in context and what it really teaches. And funny enough, they're advertising on their website that there's going to be an outpouring, an outpouring in uh, Las Vegas in the early part of uh, November. So you folks there in Las Vegas, um, watch out. There's a new set of criminals coming into town. And you might want to protect your wallets. I understand that there's already a whole bunch of criminals there in uh, Las Vegas as it is, and it's really hard to hang on to your money. Well, it's going to be that much harder now that the extreme prophetic people are coming to town. Oh, boy. Anyway, so there we go. Um, Joshua Mills and the gang. Um, <sighs> From the Wall Street Journal. Uh, by Stacy uh, Mechry and Amy Merrick, the headline reads, Vatican opens door for Anglican converts. 
The Vatican opens door for Anglican converts. Uh, at Dateline Rome, uh, Pope Benedict XVI introduced a fast track for Anglicans seeking to join Roman Catholicism, uh, paving the way for conservative Anglicans frustrated by their church's blessing of same-sex unions and homosexuality in the priesthood to enter the Catholic fo- fold. <sighs> yeah, out of the frying pan and into the fire. So let me see if I have this straight. Um, just right off the bat, you got Anglicans who are supposedly Protestants, uh, who basically are supposedly holding to the uh, confessions of the Reformation that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Uh, they affirm sola scriptura and uh, things like that. And uh, they're supposed to jettison uh, that. Uh, they're supposed to jettison Anglicanism, which is supposed to be uh, preaching and teaching those, uh, you know, basically biblical Christianity, if you would. And, um, and instead they're supposed to adopt Catholicism. Uh, which teaches that you can pray to Mary, that you are not saved by grace through faith alone, in uh, by Christ's work alone, but that you have to earn your salvation in part uh, through your works and your merits. And if you don't achieve that uh, perfectly sanctified state before you die, uh, then you get to enjoy the fires of purgatory for an unspecified amount of time while you're being purified. Um, and you know things like that. Uh, the, the you know the the Catholic faith, which teaches that Mary is a co-redemptrix with Christ, um, uh, which prays the Hail Mary, Hail Mary, full of great you know things like that. Um, so let me see. They're supposed to abandon biblical Christianity, although many parts of Anglicanism have, and uh, and so they're just supposed to go from one to the other. This just does not sound like a good bargain to me. Um, Maybe Lutherans need to reach out to confessional Lutherans need to reach out to our Anglican brothers um, and see if we can fast track them into the Lutheran Church. At least then they still hang on to uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, uh, and uh, not uh, basically engage in blasphemy, which is what happens every Sunday in a Catholic church that uh, celebrates the Mass. It's a re-sacrifice of Christ. I mean, if, <clears throat> we continue. The Vatican on Tuesday announced plans to create a special set of canon laws. Uh, that's C-A-N-O-N. That's not to be confused with the thing that uh, that uh, you put gunpowder into and launch cannonballs. Uh, a set of canon laws known as the Apostolic Constitution to allow Anglic- the Anglican faithful uh, priests and bishops to enter into full communion with the Vatican without having to give up a large part of the liturgical and spiritual traditions. I see that's without having to give up a large part. You do have to abandon salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. That's got to go. Uh, you got to abandon sola scriptura and adopt uh, this idea that uh, this uh, that uh, the things that are authoritative are uh, the Pope's edicts as tradition and the scriptures. Uh, yeah, yeah but, but for the most part, you can hang on to your thing. Uh, with the measures, Pope Benedict is attempting to reclaim lost ground by the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century when uh, King Henry VIII defied papal authority and found the church, uh, founded the Church of England. Uh, the move clears the way for entire congregations of Anglicans to join the Catholic Church and make it easier for married Anglican priests uh, to convert without embracing Catholicism, traditional code of priestly celibacy. Well, see, there's a there's a bonus. I mean... 
So you Anglican priests there, uh, out there, um, if you want to uh, join Catholicism, the good news is you can keep your wife. That's, uh, that's a positive thing. Uh, but you can't keep sola scriptura and salvation by grace alone through faith alone by Christ's work alone. And, uh, yeah, you should be praying to the Virgin Mary once, uh, you're up and running in Catholicism. Uh, yet the measures, uh, come as the, uh, Anglican Communion, the third largest grouping of Christians after Catholics, the, and Eastern Orthodox is in a state of disarray. The ordination of women along with the 2003 election of Jean Robinson, an openly gay bishop from New Hampshire, has driven a wedge between conservatives and liberals in the Episcopal Church, uh, the North American wing of the Anglican Communion. Anglican leaders in Africa have so openly criticized their counterparts in the U.S. conservative Anglicans uh, in the U.S. that uh, conservative Anglicans in the U.S. have set up a rival province, uh, the Anglican Church in North America, and many African churches have backed that governing body while calling for the Episcopal Church to be disciplined for its actions. Um, I think they should stay out of Catholicism. I think they should stick their ground and fight on the, the way they're doing it. In a rare news conference, Cardinal William Lavada, who leads the Vatican's office on doctrine, said the measures were crafted in response to requests from Anglicans seeking to join the Catholic Church, adding that, uh, that Pope Benedict hoped to integrate Anglicans into the Catholic Church while preserving their traditions. We have been trying to meet the requests for full communion that have come to us from Anglicans in different parts of the world in recent years in a uniform and equitable way, uh, said Cardinal Levada. It is unclear whether the measures have the full support of the Anglican Church. For decades, the Anglican Communion has been engaged in formal dialogue with the Vatican aimed at healing the wounds of the centuries-long schism. Um, uh, Rowan Williams, <coughs> a.k.a. Um, Captain Obvious, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Anglican Communi Communion, issued a joint statement with uh, Vincent Gerald Nichols, the Catholic Archbishop of Westminster, that described the Vatican announcement as an end to uncertainty for such groups who have nurtured hopes of new ways of embracing unity uh, with the Catholic Church. <laughs> I, some, every time that guy opens his mouth, I, I, I sit there and scratch my head. I, I sometimes don't even understand what it is that he's talking about. Uh, he, he describes the announcement as an end to uncertainty for such groups who have nurtured hopes of new ways of embracing unity with the Catholic Church. Okay, still the move appeared to uh, catch Anglican leadership off guard. Hours after the Vatican announcement, uh, Archbishop Williams sent a letter to Anglican bishops expressing concern over any confusion or misrepresentation caused by the announcement. I was informed of the planned announcement at, the, uh, at, at a very late stage, and we await the text of the Apostolic Constitution itself and its code of practice in the coming weeks, Archbishop Williams wrote. It remains to be seen what uh, use will be made of this provision since it is now up to those who have made request of the Holy See to respond to the Apostolic Constitution. I can't wait to see this document. I, I, got, I got to tell you, I'm just this is going to be all kinds of great radio. In an interview, the Right Reverend Michael Scott joined the Anglican Bishop of Winchester. That, not, that's not Winchester, uh, the gun fame. That's anyway. Uh, the co-chair of the English, uh, English Anglican Roman Catholic Committee said the measures went outside the mainstream of Vatican Anglican dialogue, adding that he too was informed of the forthcoming measures at a very late stage. The measures also raising questions in Rome. The Vatican hasn't released the text of the regulations governing the new Apostolic Constitution. 
leading some Catholic canon lawyers to question how Pope Benedict will square Anglican teachings with more rigid Catholic traditions. <laughs> yeah, that I'd like to see how that gets accomplished, too. <laughs> right, that's the rub. I mean, yeah, come on over to Rome. Okay, how are we going to uh, iron out the thorny theological issues um, that are very real with um, Catholicism? The Vatican has at times provided dispensations to non-Catholic married priests on an individual basis, including Anglicans and Lutherans. Eastern Rite churches, which are in communion with the Pope, also allow their clergy to marry. However, the dispensation has never been applied to a group as large and far-reaching as the Anglican communion. So basically, here's the deal. If you know, if it looks like this is going to go through and you're a Catholic priest, uh, what you might want to do is jump ship and become Anglican for a while, get married, and then come back to Catholicism. I mean, it's just a simple way to loophole, you know what I mean? Uh, according to Eduardo Barro, uh, Barra, a professor of canon law at the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross and a consultant to the Holy See's Congregation of Bishops, the Pope wants to make it easier to welcome these priests as Catholics. What I don't know is what will happen to future generations of priests who are ordained under the new system. Mm-hmm. This is a fine gesture, but again, the proof is always in the pudding, and the devil is, how they say, in the details. Uh, the Apostolic Constitution calls for the creation of new church structures that would minister to Anglicans who want to be in communion with the Catholic Church. These personal ordinates uh, will operate within local Catholic dioceses and be administered by formal Anglican clergy. During the Vatican News Conference, Cardinal Levada didn't disclose any details on which Anglican groups had requested communion for the Pope. In 2007, the traditional Anglican communion, the Anglican Splinter Group, uh, with about 400,000 members, approached the Vatican seeking a way to enter the Catholic Church while retaining their Anglican rights and orders. Uh, Cardinal Levada, uh, off, Levada's office, of, office received additional requests from other Anglican groups and uh, decided to create more sweeping measures, according to Vatican spokesman, the Reverend... Federico Lombardi. So there you have it. There's a solution. See what happens is is that you know there. I mean, there's a solution, right? The liberals take over your denomination. They uh, they completely wander off the biblical reservation. They start ordaining women and homosexuals. What's the solution? I know. Let's become Roman Catholics. It just doesn't seem like a viable option, at least not if doctrine means anything, not if salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone means anything. <sighs> anyway, all right, we're up on our first break, and uh, when we come back, uh, we've got an op-ed piece from uh, Al Muller. Is the battle regarding homosexuality over? Apparently, uh, uh, retired Bishop John Shelby Spong think so uh we're gonna take a look at uh we're gonna pull out this uh, shane hips uh, quote regarding all religions are valid uh want to get this in its own segment we'll talk about that and then our sermon review hour number two is a good sermon by phil johnson of the pyromaniacs blog entitled the atrocity that pleased god the atrocity that pleased god and you oh man are you going to hear the gospel in this one Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-beater system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quan Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. Na, 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 na. All right, we're back. 
Warning. This program could upset your theological apple cart. If you're trying to protect your sacred cow, I might end up slaughtering it intentionally. Just want to let you know. All right. I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means uh, your financial support is vital, critical, necessary, uh, all of those uh, words in order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Right now, we are currently... Looking for and uh, begging, borrowing, uh, well, begging is the right way, uh, asking you, our listeners, a thousand of you guys, to sign up for what we are lovingly referring to as the Pirate Christian Radio Crew, and there are perks for this. Believe me, I've been working on the perks all week long. Um, Basically, the Pirate Christian Radio Crew, what happens is you sign up for the Pirate Christian Radio Crew, and by signing up, you're agreeing to have your, uh, your account debited, a mere $6.95 a month. $6.95 a month. That's pittance. It's nothing. It's the the cost of a uh, of a of a matinee movie ticket. I mean, it's it, you know, it's the cost of a couple of DVD rentals uh at uh, Blockbuster. I mean, it, that's what we're talking about here. And by doing this, uh what happens is when we get to 1000 listeners and, and we're still less than 200. Uh <clears throat> but that's okay. We have hope. Uh, but when we get to a thousand, that guarantees that on a monthly basis we're able to pay uh, minimally, uh, minimally all of our bills. I mean, that that's granted that there's no big emergencies or anything like that, but that minimally takes care of all of our bills and ensures the longevity of of the program as well as Pirate Christian Radio. So how do you do this? You go to fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, sign up today, and uh, either at the end of this week or beginning of next. I'm not done with the programming yet. Uh, once that's all in place, then uh, then we'll release this thing. Uh, you will have access as part of this, as our way of saying thank you to you crew members. Uh, you will have access to what we're calling the Pirate Christian Cove and considered a treasure trove of um, pirated theological resources. Well, I say pirated, but actually we, we've been getting permission all over the place to uh, put the things that we're going to do in, uh, in there. And uh, you'll the, basically week after week, it'll be a growing treasure trove of theological resources on important doctrinal and theological topics. And we will also be having online uh, education, if you would, webinars to discuss and, uh, and educate on, you know, deeper on uh, theological topics, which you, you can't really do it on radio, but we can do it uh, doing that. And everybody who's a member of the Pirate Christian Radio Cove, our crew, uh, will, will, will be able to attend every one of our webinars without paying anything extra. Uh, whereas if you're not a member of the crew, then you will have to pay to, you know, to come and participate in those things. So, uh, fightingforthefaith.com, click on join our crew, and if you'd like to donate above and beyond that or don't want to, you know, just want to send in a flat uh, gift, you can do so at uh, by click, clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So there you have it. All right. Is the battle over homosexuality over in the church? Well, according to Bishop, uh, retired Bishop John Shelby Spong, uber liberal, <clears throat> um, apparently the battle's over. Uh, Al Mohler has a new piece. He has got a, a new op-ed piece, and he's a, a guest columnist over there at the Christian Post. And uh, in his uh, guest column, Al Mohler writes... Uh, the battle is over. Uh, Bishop Spong exits the debate. In his recently released uh, manifesto, Bishop Spong declares it's time to move on and pledges never again to debate the issue of homosexuality or homosexual rights. 
The battle is over. The victory has been won. There is no reasonable doubt as to what the final outcome of the struggle will be. Those are the words of John Shelby Spong, the retired Episcopal Bishop of Newark, New Jersey, in his recently released manifesto. Bishop Spong declares it's time to move on and pledges never again to debate the issue of homosexuality or homosexual rights. Apparently, he thinks he has the moral high ground. Uh, John Shelby Spong's new manifesto is a sign of the times. For the past three decades, Bishop Spong has staked out a theological position that is so far outside the realm of Christian orthodoxy that it defies description. Well, yeah, he considers Orthodox Christians to be heretics. Uh, in a succession of notorious publications, Spong has denied virtually every conceivable doctrine and has embraced almost every imaginable heresy. His abandonment, abandonment of the of biblical Christianity is both intentional and straightforward. What this bishop demands is nothing less than the total reformulation of the Christian faith. In other words, uh, Bishop Spong would replace Christianity with a new post-Christian religion while continuing to be recognized as a bishop of the Episcopal Church. That's the irony of it. And uh, by the way, if you uh, point out the fact that he's a heretic, you're going to be the one who's going to be who's divisive and dividing the body of Christ because you're pointing out his heresy. Just want to let you know how that game's played. An ardent proponent of gay rights and total normalization of homosexuality, Bishop Spong has long pressed for same-sex unions and the ordination of practicing homosexuals to every office in his church. In his new manifesto, he simply declares victory for his cause. Uh, though skirmishes in many churches and denominations continue, uh, the bishop is convinced that the final outcome of the struggle is clear. Quote, homosexual people will be accepted as equal, full human beings who have a legitimate claim on every right that both church and society has to offer any of us. Homosexual marriages will become legal, recognized by the state, and pronounced holy by the church. <laughs> Not in my church. <clears throat> Sorry. In an act of individual self-assertion, Spong simply declares that he no longer needs a, quote, majority vote of some ecclesiastical body in order to bless or ordain gay and lesbian people throughout the life of the church. The battle is both our culture and our church to rid our souls of this dying prejudice is finished, he asserts. A new consciousness has arisen. A decision quite clearly has been made. Inequality for gay and lesbian people is no longer a debatable issue in either church or state. I beg to differ. <clears throat> in most interesting, in the most interesting section of his manifesto, Bishop Spong announce, announces that he will no longer debate the issue of homosexuality with anyone. I have been part of this debate for years, but things do get settled, uh, and uh, this issue is now settled for me, Spong explains. I do not debate any longer with members of the Flat Earth Society either. So there you have it. If you um, believe what the Bible says, that homosexuality is an abomination... Uh, sin, um, and, uh, and that there will be people who will not be going, uh, who will not be saved, um, and will, uh, in fact, be damned, uh, for the sin of homosexuality, then, well, you're just like a flat earther, you know, you, duh, no one believes the earth is flat anymore. <clears throat> Indeed, Spong has been a participant in debates over homosexuality for the last quarter of a century. Now he simply announces that he no longer debates, uh, the issue because he, he is no longer even willing to admit that there are two sides to the debate. I suppose I should not have been surprised to find my name listed among those. He will never again debate. This is Al Mohler writing. Uh, though Bishop Spong appears to mean that he will not engage in debate concerning homosexuality with any con uh, on any conceivable grounds, he is particularly clear that he will not debate the question of whether homosexuality is a sin. Those who claim that homosexuality is sinful 
uh, or deviant spongences simply are unlearned. Notice the ad, that's an ad hominem argument, by the way. That we call that an ad hominem. He's not actually um, proving or disproving using the Bible that homosexuality is a sin. He's just simply insulting uh, the people who hold the position that the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. He just considers them to be unlearned plebes. <clears throat> that we, that's an ad hominem argument. It is a logical fallacy, and it doesn't actually prove anything. Uh, he writes, I will no longer engage the biblical ignorance that emanates from so many right-wing Christians about how the Bible condemns homosexuality, as if that point of view still has any credibility. Funny, it sure does, actually, because that's what the Bible says. <clears throat> of course, uh, Bishop Spong rejects any claim that the Bible is the word of God. He knows full well the Bible comprehensively condemns homosexuality in any form as sinful. He's actually admitted that on the uh, John Ankerberg show. So when he refers to biblical ignorance, he's referring to those who would understand the Bible to be the binding authority for the church. Uh, belief in the Bible as the revealed word of God, he makes clear, is simply ignorant. So that's see, that's the thing. John Shelby Spong is on record. I should find the audio for that and play it for you. I'll, maybe I can dig it up by tomorrow. Um, he's on record as saying that homosexuality is condemned in the Bible. He readily admits it. So for him, the issue is not whether or not the Bible says homosexuality is a sin. He's, he admits that it does. Um, but uh, if you think that the Bible is authoritative for the church, you're just a doofus. Uh, that's see, you know, that's how you get around it. Bible schmeibel. Who needs a Bible? We just make up our own God as we go along. Uh, one section of his manifesto reeks of unintended irony. He simply declares that the global debate over homosexuality has been terminated. Uh, the world has moved moved on, leaving these elements of the Christian church that cannot adjust to the new knowledge or to the new consciousness lost in a sea of their own irrelevance. They no longer talk to anyone but themselves. No, actually, we speak prophetically to the world, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, including the sin of homosexuality. The obvious irony is this. The churches and denominations that have most eagerly embraced the normalization of homosexuality are also those losing members by the millions. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but there we've won the debate. We won. We won. They say that's that's their we won while they're while people are leaving in droves. While the Episcopal Church in the United States is following the dictates of Bishop Spong and his apostate colleagues, uh, that denomination has lost uh, entire dioceses along with a huge swath of its membership. Meanwhile, the conservative and Orthodox churches in the Anglican Communion are thriving, growing and emboldened. So which churches are lost in a sea of their own irrelevance? <laughs> Great point. Uh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't. I, did I show too much joy and glee over that point? I'm sorry, I, I, I need to be more serious. <clears throat> it's very difficult to do. Uh, Bishop Spong clearly hopes that his new manifesto will bring all debate over homosexuality to an end. Well, not hardly. While the bishop's manifesto is written in language of bravado, it actually represents an intellectual posture of surrender. Worldwide, uh, the percentage of churches and denominations that have embraced Bishop Spong's position on homosexuality is infinitesimally small. Love that word, infinitesimally. Uh, the Episcopal Church has taken radical steps to abandon biblical sexuality, but even within the denomination, the debate over sexuality is hardly over. 
As if we should expect Bishop Spong is uh, true to his word, he will be missing uh, from any future debate over the question of homosexuality. That debate will continue without him. Nevertheless, we should note carefully his effort to marginalize and silence those committed to a biblical understanding of homosexuality. Uh, that's called an ad hominem argument. While Bishop Spong's manifesto is nothing to fear, the effort to silence all opposition to the normalization of homosexuality will undoubtedly continue. <laughs> I, for one, I ain't going down without a fight. No way. Uh, I know what the Bible says. I can read it in Greek and Hebrew, and it says it's an abomination and a sin. And I don't consider myself to be irrelevant or and or stupid, although some people might argue that I am. Just want to point that out. And so Bishop Spong exits the debate, and yet, given what we have come to expect of John Shelby Spong, I'm betting we haven't heard the last from him yet. <sighs> That's right. As the Episcopal Church completely implodes and explodes, apparently, but see, he's declaring victory. That's kind of dumb. That you know, you know what that reminds me of? That would be, uh, seriously, the, the equivalent here would be the, that, that's like the South during the Civil War declaiming, uh, claiming victory, um, after, um, Sherman has marched to the sea. I mean, yeah, they can claim victory all they want. And, uh, uh you know, Jeff Davis, he had, he's, he used a lot of bravado. Basically, you know, even when, uh, even when Richmond had, fa- was, had fallen, he basically said that he, you know, he would rule his government from overseas if he needed to. Uh, because the uh, the certainty of their cause was sure, and the victory was uh, within their grasp. Uh-huh. <clears throat> yeah. So, okay. All right, next segment here. Now, if you were listening a couple of weeks ago, I did a, what I, this, this segment, the segment, the sermon review was entitled the... Uh, Shane Hip's pantheism twinspin. Now, I, I've received a couple of emails from people. Uh, was, is it pantheism or panentheism? I think in his case, in the case of Shane Hip's, we're actually dealing with pantheism. Um, and um, the, the reasons for that are, are multiple and uh, also based upon private conversations that I've had with Shane Hip's. Um, but here, here's the deal, okay? I want to play this segment here, okay? This is very serious, Somebody uh, like Rob Bell, who was a rock star uh, among evangelicals uh, of Numa video fame. This is a man who has influenced, I kid you not, a gazillion. I don't know how many that is, but a lot. Millions of uh, of evangelical youth have uh, listened to and witnessed and watched uh, Rob Bell's teaching via these Numa videos. Okay. And, um, and yet, Rob Bell's theology is, uh, how shall I say this, cockeyed? That's a, probably a right way of saying it. And uh, we've been critiquing it here at Fighting for the Faith really since the beginning of the program. I think one of our earliest programs here at Fighting for the Faith was uh, when we were doing a pilot. We actually piloted uh, using content from uh, what Rob Bell said at the Seeds of Compassion event back in, I think it was March of last year. And, um, and, you know, the, the, the stuff he said was just off the chain, uh, bad. Um, but, uh, so we've been critiquing Rob Bell for a while. The problem is he's been very coy about what his theology is. And many have accused him of being a universalist. Many have, you know, have accused him of having a false gospel. Well, here's the deal. New development. Uh, last week, um, Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan announced that they had extended a call to Shane Hips. Uh, Shane Hips uh, shared the pulpit uh, with uh, with the dais with uh, Rob Bell at the Poets, Prophets, Preachers Conference. It was 
Shane Hips, uh, Rob Bell, and Peter Rollins uh, headlining that event. And I, after the uh, after witnessing, we in fact we re, we reviewed the content of Shane Hips's uh, speeches there. Uh, via the notes that were taken from a blogger who was in attendance. I mean, it was just some crazy, crazy stuff that we were hearing coming from Shane Hips. Well, I called him up to get more clarification on his doctrine regarding that, and I had a couple of private uh, phone conversations with Shane. During his phone conversations, he made it perfectly clear that he believes that salvation um, is when Jesus Christ awakens you to the divine breath within you. Okay. Now, uh, in one of his sermons that we reviewed, he said that pretty much to the said that pretty flatly now in another sermon entitled uh, wind and sail uh shane hips and we're going to play this uh, segment here basically claims that uh, the that uh, the apostle john teaches that all religions are valid okay we're going to play this little five minute segment and uh, comment on it and here's the deal why is this so important because shane hips is now co-pastor at mars hill bible church with rob bell And here's the deal. I don't believe for a second that Rob Bell is in the dark as to what Shane Hips believes, teaches, and confesses. Don't, I don't think it for a second. I think, and I could be wrong. There's a 10% chance that I could be wrong on this. I'll, I'll hold it out at that. Uh, I, that, uh, that Rob Bell and Shane Hips, their theologies actually mesh and, uh, that they, they believe pretty much the same thing. Otherwise, how could they co-lead Mars Hill Bible Church if they were not doctrinally on the same page? Okay, now listen, I'm a confessional Lutheran. I am a confessional Lutheran to the core, all right? Um, if, you were to ask, if, if someone were to ask me to co-pastor a, uh, a Southern Baptist church, I couldn't do it. Not because I don't, uh, I, I don't think that Southern Baptists are Christians. I do think that they're Christians. The reason why is because I would be at odds with that Southern Baptist pastor. And, uh, and you know, we, it just is not a formula for success. Let me put it that way. And so, uh, th- that being the case, I couldn't, sh- I couldn't co-pastor a, a church with somebody who I wasn't on the same page with theologically. That being the case, I think it is reasonable to uh, basically think that Rob Bell and Shane Hips are on the same page, that they're singing from the same uh, hymn book, uh, but they don't use hymns. Uh, but you get what I'm saying, that, that I think theologically what we see in Shane Hips is what is what's really ticking under the hood with Rob Bell. That being the case, let me play this, uh, this, um, this five-minute soundbite from the sermon entitled... Uh, uh, Wind in the Sail by Shane Hips. And listen carefully. He's going to basically say that the Apostle John is teaching that all religions are valid. And he's using this by discussing the, the term logos, which he gets wrong, by the way. But we continue. John is the ultimate unifier and integrator of two religious systems that have nothing in common. Listen, that's his leadoff. The Apostle John is the ultimate unifier and uh, synthesizer, well, I forget the word, but uh, of two religions. The Jews and the Greeks. Nothing in common. Nothing at all in common. Didn't even use the same language most of the time. So here John comes along and says, hey, to the Jews, you know that thing you talk about, that wisdom, that beautiful wisdom that you talk about? Yeah, that, right. You know that? And to the Greeks, he said, hey, you know that logos, that mysterious, beautiful thing with life and fire and and life? That, yeah, right. Both of those things, wisdom and logos, they are actually one thing. Really? They're one thing? 
And they found full and complete expression in the person of Jesus. So here's what's so stunning. At a time when it was unthinkable to try and unify religions, John is basically saying, your religion, totally valid, I love it, I'm, I'm even using your language. And your religion, I love it, it's beautiful, totally valid, I'm even using your language. But I so apparently the Apostle John is saying to uh, the religion of the Greeks, uh, their religion is totally valid. The idolatrous uh, Greeks, the, whom the Apostle Paul called to repentance for their idolatry, and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Apparently, the Apostle John is saying, oh, your religion's completely valid. And, and Jews, yours is completely valid, too. I just want you both to know that there's something bigger than what you've got. There's something that transcends what you have. It doesn't nullify what you have. It doesn't get rid of what you have. It just moves beyond it. So John does this unbelievably beautiful thing of basically saying, I want to get past the religious divisions among us in our world. I don't want to get past it. Jesus comes to bring us past it. So Jesus comes to bring us past the religious divisions in the world. Listen carefully. Jesus is the ultimate unifier of these various diverse ways of looking at the world. So, so the, these external things, religion is about making these distinctions, and guess what? That isn't a bad thing. Having a distinct religious identity marked by some boundaries, knowing how you're different from other religions, isn't a problem. John isn't trying to get rid of that. He's trying to point beyond it. Keep it, but move beyond it. So keep your religious distinction, but move beyond your religious distinction. To lose your religious identity is like losing a sail at sea. The sail is like religion. The wind is the spirit. You need a sail to catch the wind, to harness the wind. But you've got to realize that that sail isn't the wind. The sail is actually dependent on the wind. See, here's the crazy thing. The spirit, the wind, doesn't need sails in order for it to move about the world. The sails need the wind. So the spirit, in order for it to move and operate in the world, has no need of religion. But we, those of us made the way we are, for some reason, need sails in order to catch the wind. So each religion is just like a sail, okay, that catches the wind. We need religious structures, external things we can touch and see, and traditions and lineages that teach us so that we can better catch the wind. That includes Islam, Buddhism, Jainism, Taoism, uh, any animistic religions. It doesn't matter. Um, all religions are. They're just sails to catch the wind. Now, some sails are built better than other sails. Oh, so some sails. So, like, some religions are built better. At, at, they're more effective at catching the wind of the Spirit. But they all do catch the wind of the Spirit. Some sails are bigger than other sails. Some sails are a different shape than other sails. And those differences matter. And sometimes one sail is better than another sail. In the same way that some religions are better equipped to catch the Spirit of God, some religions are not as well equipped to fully capture and be compelled by the Spirit. So some religions are better equipped to catch the Spirit of God. Basically, he's saying all religions catch the Spirit of God. 
This is a bald-faced lie. This is idolatry, and, contra- and God's word clearly says that this is false. Spirit. So it matters what religion you choose. It matters why that religion, uh, why you choose it. It matters what it looks like, how it's shaped. But don't ever confuse the sail with the spirit, the sail with the wind. Here's what's so confusing about this. John comes along and he says, hey, both of you guys, you got great sails. They look awesome. I just want you to know it's the wind that I'm interested in. No, he didn't say that. John never said to uh, the Greek religion that worship the pantheon of gods, that's a great sail you have there. Works perfectly fine, but you need to look beyond it to the wind. He says Jesus became the fullness of that wind. And so along comes us, and we create a sail around that person. We go, now we've got it. Woo! <laughs> it's just another sail. So Jesus is just another sail. Uh, so Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. He's just uh, one sail among many sails. Just because we claim Jesus as the center of our religion does not make us one and the same with the wind of God. It just means we have another sail. I happen to think it's a better sail than most other sails. So the Jesus sail is a better sail than, than maybe the Allah sail. But the Allah sail, that's a perfectly fine sail for catching the winds of the Spirit, too. I happen to think it's a more effective sail than other sails. That's why I chose this particular sail. But it ain't the wind. This is what John is doing, and it's extremely innovative. No, that's not what John is doing. And it's very unsettling. What you're doing is very unsettling because it's blatant heresy. That he's inviting us beneath and beyond the things that make distinctions between us. He's pointing beyond the sail to the wind, and he desperately wants us to experience the wind, the Logos, that animating creative life force. That What is the Logos? An animating creating life force. The Logos is an animating creating life force. That's why I say this is pantheism, not panentheism. This is pantheism gives you breath right now in this very moment. That's what John will be pointing us to. So as we go through this series, that's what we're going to be experiencing and exploring, is this whole thing of the Logos becoming flesh and the difference between our how we operate in the world and how God animates everything that is in the world. And that's why it says, it was the life and light of all people. It didn't say the light and the life of people who believe in Jesus. This knocking faith in Jesus. This Logos affects everybody, including Osama bin Laden. As long as he's got breath, in him is a spark of the divine. So Osama bin Laden has the spark of the divine within him. There you go. All right, so why did I play that? Why did I pull it out as its own segment? Because here's the reason why. I think Rob Bell teaches and believes the same thing. Otherwise, then why would he uh, have them call Shane Hips as a pastor at Mars Hill? I mean, he's got to share a pulpit with this guy. About half the time, uh, Shane Hips is going to be teaching at Mars Hill Bible Church. He's going to be teaching heresy that all religions are, are, are sails to catch the wind of the Spirit, but they're all valid. 
He's not going to proclaim Christ and him crucified for our sins and call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So uh, why is this important? Because evangelical rock star, uh, whom some said were go- was going to be the next Billy Graham, that's Rob Bell, I think he believes this too. Otherwise, he wouldn't be uh, wanting to be tied up and yoked with uh, this man from the same pulpit. All right, we're up on our second break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to just dive right into our sermon review. I'll do Romans uh, 11 tomorrow. And uh, the name of the sermon is The Atrocity That Pleased God. Great, fine Bible uh, gospel sermon from Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog. So you're definitely not going to want to miss that. And uh, and so we'll just dive right into that when we get back from the break. So uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can follow me on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there again, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, With a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. 
The holiday travel season is rapidly approaching, and the last thing you want to do, especially in these economic times, is pay more for airfare and travel expenses than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, I kid you not, that's their name, provides travel services that you need at the lowest possible prices. Cheapo Air is an eight-time consecutive HitWise U.S. Top 10 Award winner for diversified travel services. So if you're looking for low-cost airfares for the upcoming holiday season, Cheapo Air has what you're looking for. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, that's right, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, you will find on that page a special promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of any airfare or travel services that you purchase at Cheapo Air. That's right. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and book your holiday travel today. All right, we are back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. Sermon review time. We need to take a break from the bad sermons and get into a good one. Always like hearing ones that tell me about Christ. All right, sermon review, the good, the bad, the ugly. We review them all here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, this one comes to us via Phil Johnson. I think he sometimes fills in for John MacArthur at Grace Community Church out there in, I think, Sunland, California? Isn't all of Southern California Sunland? Never mind. I used to live there. Anyway, the name of the sermon is The Atrocity That Pleased God. Nice, provocative title. Uh, the, the text that forms the basis of his sermon is taken from Isaiah chapter 53. And if you miss the gospel in this sermon, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's, like a, it's physically impossible for you to do that. I mean, you, you, I mean, he hits you upside the head with a two-by-four of the gospel. So what are we listening for? Law and gospel properly distinguished. The law preached to condemn us of our sins and tell us what a good work is. The gospel uh, preached to comfort us uh, in because we are sinners who have broken God's law. Real simple. How is he using scripture? Is he exegeting or is he eisegeting? Is he twisting God's word, or is he correctly handling it and telling us what it says? Or is he taking stuff out of context and making the Bible try to support his ideas, which is uh, strictly verboten. Just, that's not, no bueno. That's no bueno. All right, we're going to kill the music. Yeah, I like that part. Ooh. Sorry, doing the white man over by love this ukulele version. Ah, all right, got to stop. Okay, so here we go. Phil Johnson on the atrocity that pleased God. 
let's have a look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, one of my favorite passages. I think years ago, back around 1992 or 1994 or so, the first time I ever preached at Grace Church, I preached on this passage. So it's great to come back and look at it. This is perhaps the best known and the most dramatic of all the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament because it foretold the sufferings and the glory of Christ in such vivid, unmistakable terms. You read this and you think, this is about Jesus. There's no, almost no other way to look at it. Here you have both a prophetic picture of the crucifixion and a strong hint of the resurrection. And I think the most important feature of this passage is the light it sheds on the meaning of Christ's death and the glory of the atonement. So it fits right with the theme they've asked me to speak about in this conference. I remember clearly the first time I ever considered this passage. I was a teenager at the time. I had gone to church all my life, but we belonged to a denomination that had been completely swallowed up by theological liberalism. I've told you some about that in the past, but uh, it was miserable for me as, a, as an adolescent going to Sunday school and hearing teachers talk in academic terms about the Bible and pretty much try to undermine the foundations of everything it taught. I couldn't see why go at all if what we're going to learn is the Bible isn't true. Why talk about it then? Right, that makes no sense, which is exactly where liberals spend their time, by the way. I saw this at the Christianity 21 conference. I mean, there was a, there was a couple of speakers who spent their time doing nothing but trashing the Bible and the exclusive claims of the Bible. Oh, it can't mean that. The Bible, the Bible. You know, they, they're, they're afraid of that thing. They hate uh, systematic theology. They hate biblical theology. Why? Because it's kryptonite to their, to their corrupt apostate theology. And so here's uh, Phil Johnson describing his stint as a kid in theological liberalism. And as a kid, he says, why even go exactly? What's the point of pretending to have a church uh, that's supposedly Christian, and the only thing that you're going to do is trash God and his word? Yeah, synagogue de satana, synagogues of Satan, that's what these things are. We were force-fed a steady diet of theological liberalism. What I regularly heard in Sunday school was anti-Christian unbelief masquerading as religion. So by the time I entered high school, none of the students I went to church with had any confidence whatsoever in the truth of Scripture. The breaking point for me came, I think, about the ninth grade. I had a Sunday school teacher who was determined to stuff our heads full of this liberal nonsense, to disabuse us of any thought that the Bible ought to be taken seriously. And each Sunday, this woman would hammer us with arguments against the authority of Scripture. She actually warned us that it was dangerous to take the Bible seriously. That's what I was hearing in Sunday school. Each Sunday... Yeah, the, the irony there is just ridiculous. That's what he was hearing in church at Sunday school. Uh-huh. Theological liberalism is apostate. It is heretical. It's not Christianity. She would fill us with these arguments against whatever text we happen to be considering in Sunday school. And as far as she was concerned, only a totally unenlightened religious fanatic would read the Bible and take what it has to say at face value. 
And one of her favorite arguments against the Bible was this. She claimed, if you study the Bible, it portrays God differently from everything we know about God from the New Testament. The Old Testament has a different God. She, you've heard this argument before, right? The Old Testament God was a God of wrath, but the New Testament God is a God of love. Obviously, that's an argument easily answered from the Bible itself, because both the Old and the New Testaments speak of God's wrath as well as His love. The Old Testament is where God told His people, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. That's Jeremiah 31, verse 3. And the New Testament gospel begins with the wrath of God revealed from heaven. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. But as a ninth grader, I didn't know those scriptures. I had no answer for this argument. When the woman said, yeah, the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God, that seemed persuasive to me. She had a whole array of those kinds of arguments against the Bible. And she hammered us with them every single week. She told us, for example, that starting sometime in the late first century, the disciples blended Jesus' teaching with Greek and Roman religious ideas, paganism, and basically the disciples formed a new religion. She said the early church basically took what Jesus taught and corrupted it with these Greek religious ideas. And so she said what we need to do is get back to the moral essence of what Jesus really taught, but we shouldn't take anything else too seriously, especially the miracles, which for some reason she had a particular hatred for. And of course, in the process, she eliminated most of the Bible. It was typical theological liberalism packaged in a simple but sophisticated-sounding format for ninth graders. And I had no way of knowing that at the time, and I had no answer for it. Like a lot of theological liberals, my ninth grade Sunday school teacher had a special contempt for the Apostle Paul. Not to mention the fact that she was a woman, and she blamed Paul for saying women should keep silent in the church. And in retrospect, I think she might be a living example of why Paul said that, but she really hated Paul. I don't think she ever said anything good about him. She taught us that Paul's version of Christianity is totally different from what Jesus taught. She said Paul is too harsh, too narrow-minded. And she said, and this sticks out in my mind for some reason, she said that Paul had an unhealthy fixation with violence and bloodshed. And the proof, according to her, was that Paul said, I'm determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. She said that was morbid. And she said it glorified the violence of the crucifixion unnecessarily. She had no interest in the cross. She said the Beatitudes summarize everything that was really important about the ministry of Jesus. And according to her, Jesus died as a martyr, not as a sin offering. She said the God she worshipped was too loving to demand a blood sacrifice for sin. She said the whole notion of substitutionary atonement sounds pagan. That's what I was taught in Sunday school as a ninth grader. One other thing I remember about this woman is that she strongly resented the doctrine of predestination. This is a Methodist church, so you understand. It was Arminian to the core, and so was she. She claimed Paul was a fatalist. 
She mocked the sovereignty of God, and she flatly denied that God is in control of everything because she was sure that if God is really sovereign over everything, there wouldn't be pain or death or injustice. As far as she was concerned, the doctrines of substitutionary atonement and the sovereignty of God were classic examples of the sort of pagan ideas the Apostle Paul either invented or borrowed from the Greeks. And, of course, she was angry that Paul said women should keep silence in the church. Even as a ninth grader, I didn't totally buy into all of this. I was, a, and, and I suppose that's the good side of being an adolescent with a sort of naturally rebellious mind where whatever your teacher's trying to teach you, you're inclined to think the opposite. It was helpful in my case. I just didn't buy into this. I wasn't a believer. And in fact, I literally knew nothing about the doctrine of salvation. I had no clue that I even needed any kind of salvation. I, I occasionally heard people talk about being saved, but it was only the Baptists that ever talked that way. Methodists didn't get saved, you know? So I wasn't really very well equipped biblically to evaluate what this woman was teaching us. But something about these incessant attacks on apostolic doctrine annoyed me. It struck me as really odd that a Sunday school teacher, of all people, would spend so much time and focus so much energy on teaching us to distrust the Bible. I remember thinking, you know, if she's right, I'm wasting my time here in Sunday school talking about the Bible. If she's right, why don't we just stay home and watch the NFL pregame? What's the point in studying a book that is filled with lies and contradiction? And at one point, I think I've told you this before, I actually raised that question in class. If the Bible's not true, why are we talking about it? Let's go home and watch football. And the pastor summoned me to his office. He heard that I said that, and he called me in. I remember I went in on a weekday, and he warned me that it sounded to him like I was in danger of becoming a fundamentalist. He was a prophet. <laughs> I do believe that in those days the Lord was already pursuing me, and maybe that's why I could never swallow the idea that the Bible is filled with a lot of made-up stuff. In my heart, I knew better. You just look at human history and see the impact Scripture has made on the way people think and what we do and our whole culture. And I knew it couldn't be just like Aesop's fables. We needed to take it more seriously about that. Something in my heart and my conscience told me that. And a few years later, at the end of my senior year in high school, I heard an evangelist who was preaching on the crucifixion. And at one point in his message, he quoted Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And I realized when I heard him quote that, that's the very same idea my Sunday school teacher claimed Paul borrowed from pagan religion. Now, in spite of my lame Sunday school education, I knew enough about the Bible to realize that Isaiah is in the Old Testament. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, that's the Old Testament. Paul didn't stick that in in the late first century. 
That's the Old Testament. And that is the Old Testament. How can that be speaking about Jesus? The Old Testament was written before Jesus. And I borrowed a Bible from, I was there without a Bible. A friend had invited me to this evangelistic crusade. And I borrowed his Bible and I turned out, tuned out what the preacher was saying and found this text in Isaiah. And I began to read this passage because he had a Bible that was laid out in paragraphs. I started reading with Isaiah 52, 13. And as far as I can remember, I had never seen this passage or heard anyone quote it before. Let me read the whole text to you, starting at Isaiah 52, 13, and I'll read through the end of Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now, when I read that passage for the first time, it forever erased from my mind any doubt about whether the Bible is the Word of God. Because this describes the work of Christ on the cross so clearly that you really would have to be deliberately blind in order not to see it. 
And yet, Isaiah's prophecy of the cross, this passage was written more than 700 years before the event it describes. There's no way merely human foresight could account for the details in this prophecy. And there's no way short of a sovereign God that all of those details could be literally fulfilled 700 years later in the crucifixion of Christ. I saw immediately that the cross was the plan of God and the Bible has to be the Word of God. Now, before we look any further at this passage, just put a marker in this place. And I want to show you one other Old Testament passage that also describes the crucifixion of Jesus in extremely vivid detail. <clears throat> By the way, while I was sitting there reading that passage that night, this evangelist was doing exposition of some of the phrases from it. He was focusing on Isaiah 53. And then he turned over to Psalm 22 and began to show some of these things. And his point was the very thing I'm, I'm talking about, that the cross was the plan of God. God was the one doing this. This wasn't a mistake. Jesus didn't die unwillingly. This was God's plan for our redemption. David wrote about it in Psalm 22. David, of course, knew nothing about crucifixion. Nailing people to crosses wasn't even used as a means of execution for at least a thousand years after David's reign. So the only way to explain the vivid description of the cross you find in this psalm is if God himself inspired these words. And what's remarkable about Psalm 22 is the sheer number of exact parallels you find between what this psalm says and what happened to Jesus on the cross. Let me point out just a few of the highlights of it. We don't have time to go through the whole thing, but here's some highlights. First of all, notice this psalm starts with the exact words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You'll find that in Matthew 27, 46. Now, someone might say, well, sure, Jesus was quoting this psalm. But no, look, verse 8 also gives the precise words of the crowd who taunted Jesus. He trusts in the Lord, verse 8. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The fulfillment of that prophecy is in Matthew 27, 43. It's an exact parallel passage it says the people standing around watching Jesus be crucified said this, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. It's the exact same phrasing even. Verses 14 through 16 describe in exact terms the physical effects of crucifixion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. You remember that when Christ's side was pierced, fluid came out like blood and water mixed. That's exactly the phenomenon that's described here. My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet." And verse 18 then adds this detail. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. See John 19, verse 24, for the historical fulfillment of that prophecy. And those are just a few of the obvious references to the crucifixion in Psalm 22. There are actually many more. Maybe one of these days we'll look at Psalm 22. But that's enough to make the point that the prophetic subject of 
this psalm, Psalm 22, was the crucifixion of Christ. And there are too many exact details for it to be accidental. Those verses, both in Psalm 22 and the verses I read earlier in Isaiah 53, those were both familiar passages in the Old Testament, centuries before the advent of Christ. They were not added after the fact. They were not added in the mid-first century by apostles who wanted to create a new religion, invent something new. But who could ever deny that these were literally and perfectly fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus? That's one of the points Scripture itself makes as it gives us a detailed explanation of what Christ suffered on the cross. This was a fulfillment of prophecy. Here is one of the undeniable proofs that Scripture is the Word of God. Two passages in the Old Testament, the two passages themselves written hundreds of years apart, both perfectly foretold the crucifixion of Christ. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, look at the crucifixion, both of them, but from different perspectives. The focus of Psalm 22 is on the historical details. Psalm 22 is a narrative about what was said and what was done in the unfolding drama around the cross. David foretold the exact words that were said both by Jesus and by those who mocked him. He predicted the piercing of Jesus' hands and his feet. He also described the other extreme physical agonies Jesus suffered. Those are all, notice, historical details who, what, when, and where features. But Isaiah 53 is different. Go back there now and let's look at it. Here the focus is on the theology of the crucifixion. Rather than relating the facts of the crucifixion like Psalm 22 does, Isaiah gives us the theological meaning of Christ's sufferings. David gives a factual account. Isaiah gives an interpretive account. And that's what fascinates me the most about Isaiah 53. Isaiah is writing as a theologian. The most significant details in this chapter are doctrinal. He's outlining the theology of the atonement. He addresses some of the most difficult and most important issues any theologian could ever try to come to grips with. And so it's a passage full of rich theology. I wish we had time. It would take several weeks, really, to go through it in exhaustive detail because it's almost as if Isaiah is a participant in some of the theological debates that are taking place today. And he leaves no ambiguity about where he stands theologically. He answers those people who say, look, the, the cross is too bloody, the idea of propitiation sacrifice, blood sacrifice, to pay the price of sin, that's too grotesque, too pagan sounding. Isaiah answers that, and he leaves no ambiguity about his stance. Now, since we have only about a half hour left, I want to highlight three important doctrines Isaiah has woven into this text. These are the doctrines we're going to be looking at. The sovereignty of God, substitutionary atonement, and justification by faith. All right. Going to pause for a second. I want to kind of highlight something. When you 
hear the emergence in the neoliberals. That's what they are. They're liberalism. It's liberalism 2.0 that we're experiencing with uh, the emergent church movement, especially the Tony Jones, Doug Padgett, uh, Brian McLaren strain of that virus. Um, what we're dealing with there is this claim, uh, you know, this this talk about narrative theology and stuff like that. Again, this is a, it's a clever way to get away from the theological documents in the Bible. Okay, let me let me kind of put it to you this way: If I were a foreigner visiting Jerusalem on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified on Good Friday, okay. I just arrived in Jerusalem. I don't really know the language, um, in, you know. But let's say I have like a working knowledge of Hebrew or you know, and uh, an Aramaic, and you know I'm visiting there from uh, the far reaches of the Roman Empire. I blow into town. I get there, and as I'm as I'm going into the city, uh, just outside of the walls of Jerusalem, I see three crosses, three bodies hanging on those crosses. And what am I going to think? Am I going to think, oh, wow, there's the king of kings and lord of lords dying for the sins of the world? Nope. That's not what I'm going to think. What I'm going to think is like, all right, so there's three poor criminals who are um, getting what they deserve. And uh, I would pass them and move right along. I... It doesn't, you know, just if you were to see the events historically playing out, Jesus being, you know, his hands and feet being nailed to the cross, him in agony after being scourged, being picked up on the cross, the crown of thorns being pressed into his head. It, it's a brutal, terrible thing to witness. But the historical facts do not tell you the theological significance. And so in Scripture, keep this in mind. There's different types of uh, of documents in the scripture. The gospels themselves are very similar to Psalm 22 in that they play out the historical narrative. Jesus was arrested, put on trial. Uh, the crowd you, they shouted they wanted Barabbas. They flogged Jesus. They beat Jesus. They pushed a crown of thorn into Jesus' head, and then they nailed him to the cross they put a, a a thing over his that said, "Behold, King of the Jews." It was in three different languages. By the way, the name of that uh, that uh, particular thing is called the titulus. And um, and six hours after uh, uh, you know Jesus um, began crucifixion, he died. You could say the sun was darkened. There was an earthquake. Um, and, uh, it, 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 and and the and the the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Um, you know, so all these interesting things happening, but even then, if it, just knowing the historical narrative, it doesn't tell you anything of the theology. What does all of that mean? Why was Jesus on the cross? What was he accomplishing on the cross? What was the purpose of his crucifixion? All of that is explained in the other portions of Scripture that that basically flesh out the theological implications of these historical events. Okay, and Isaiah fifty three gives us the theological significance, and uh, Paul's uh, Paul's epistles very clearly give us the uh, the theological significance significance and doctrinal significance of what Christ was doing on the cross. 
And so here's the deal. When you talk with a liberal or a neo-emergent and they're talking about, oh, I'm a red-letter Christian or we need to stick with the narrative theology and all that kind of stuff, what they're trying to do is evade and get away from because they are basically pious unbelievers. They have a semblance of religion, uh, some form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And um, basically they want to avoid and get away from the theological sections of the Bible that bear out what Christ has done for us. They deny salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. They deny the uh, that we are by nature sinful, sinners. They deny Christ's substitutionary atonement. And so by saying, well, I'm a red-letter Christian or whatever, they are basically trying to make it so that they can, they can read the Bible and, quote, take it seriously. See, you can't take it any more seriously than red letters. Or they'll say, uh, you know, I, I weight the red letters heavier than I do uh, the, you know, Paul's epistles, and so they they have a greater weight than his stuff does. What are they trying to do? Get away from what the cross says. So they want to stay within the visible church, uh, but they don't want uh, what the Bible says. They don't. They are offended by the cross and what Christ has done, and they are desperately trying to redefine it, remake it in such a way that they can get away from this ugly thing that Christ died for our sins it is a, a penal substitute. They want to get away from that. And I think Phil Johnson is doing a fine job here, but I just I kind of wanted to add to what he was saying. Sovereignty, substitution, and salvation. Three key doctrines that permeate all of Scripture, and this passage is kind of a focal point. In fact, I want to point out something that's remarkable. These three doctrines, the sovereignty of God, substitutionary atonement, and justification by faith, those same three doctrines are the very heart of Paul's theology. At all the crucial crucial points in this chapter, Isaiah's theology exactly parallels what the Apostle Paul taught and what the Apostle Paul emphasized. Now, I'm kind of looking forward to hearing how he talks about the sovereignty of God. This is not a uh, this is not at the center of Lutheran theology. So, I mean, we do believe in the sovereignty of God. Um, it just, it, it takes, a, it has a different orbit in our theological system. And so, you know, because it's such a primary, it, it, it's closer to the center, if not the center of uh, Reformed theology. I'm, I'm curious to hear what he has to say on this. Isaiah is in the Old Testament what Paul is in the New Testament. They highlight the same doctrines... They take the very same theological stance. They are in perfect harmony with one another. In other words, this chapter actually refutes everything my liberal Sunday school teacher used to claim. It turns out that the very doctrines she thought Paul made up were in the Bible all along. They were right here in Isaiah. She just read the Old Testament. Every one of her objections to Paul's doctrine are blown blown to bits by Isaiah 53. And can I point out another thing? These same three doctrines played a crucial role in the Protestant Reformation. The sovereignty of God, substitutionary atonement, justification by faith, all three of those doctrines figured heavily in the writings of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and every one of the major reformers. The reformers didn't always agree among themselves on every little doctrine, but They were all of one accord when it came to these crucial doctrines. You could say the same thing, by the way, about the Puritans. 
In fact, you could look at every period in church history where the church has prospered spiritually, and you will discover that every one of those eras, every time of revival, every time there's been a significant resurgence of faith and and the church has been seriously re-energized, every single time it's been marked by an emphasis on the sovereignty of God, substitutionary atonement, and justification by faith. Paul and the early church fathers taught these doctrines in the first and second centuries. Augustine defended them vigorously in the fourth century against the false teaching of Pelagius. The early reformers began to revive them in the 1400s. They were the basis of Puritan theology in the 16th and 17th centuries. And it was the preaching of these very same doctrines that touched off the Great Awakening in New England in the 18th century. And virtually every significant revival in the history of the church has been linked closely to the preaching of these doctrines. So these things constitute the very heart of historic Christianity, but here we find they are rooted in the Old Testament. That's really amazing, isn't it? It's as if Isaiah is a New Testament theologian. Let's look at them one at a time. First, the sovereignty of God. Verse 10. This is where I really want to focus. Verse 10. It begins with words that really are shocking when you think about it. Remember, this is a prophecy about the crucifixion. This is talking about the death of Christ. And it says this, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. That's an amazing and shocking thought, isn't it? I think we're too prone to think of the crucifixion of Christ as an atrocity that was carried out at the hands of evil men. It was that, certainly was that. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The, the prophet there is confessing his own sinful complicity in this event that he describes. The worst aspects of human evil are revealed in the crucifixion of Christ at Pentecost. Peter told the people of Jerusalem, You have taken your Messiah by lawless hands, and you have crucified him and put him to death. Acts 2.23. They were guilty for it. God held them responsible. But that's only half of what Peter said. Here's the full text of Acts 2.23. This Jesus, he said, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God... You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Don't write the cross off as an unexpected tragedy. Don't think for a moment that Jesus was merely a martyr who died at the hands of sinful men. The truth behind the cross, the big truth behind the cross, the, the heart of the truth behind the cross is that God was sovereignly in control orchestrating this all along. This was God's plan. This was the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. It pleased God, Isaiah says. He was glorified in it. And he exercised sovereign control over every aspect of it, every single detail. Who killed Jesus? 
People love to debate whether the Jews or the Romans were responsible. It comes up just about every Easter. The truth is, they conspired together to do it. Acts 4.27 records a prayer that in the early church, speaking of the crucifixion, now this is a prayer addressed to God, and it says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now, notice what this text is saying. The guilt was shared by both Pilate and Herod, both Rome and Jerusalem, both the Gentiles and the Jews. But listen to verse 28. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together, Acts 4.28, to do whatever God's hand and His plan had predestined to take place. That's an amazing statement in this prayer, isn't it? The cross is the ultimate proof of the sovereignty of God. God was in absolute control of this. Jesus said in verse 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Think about this. If God was in control when the hands of godless men carried out the most evil act that has ever been committed... How can we doubt God's sovereignty over the rest of human history? If God was in control when His own Son was crucified, what makes us think some lesser evil means God has lost control? He hasn't. He's sovereign. Now let's face it, most people simply don't believe God is sovereign. That's the natural tendency of the human mind to think when things go wrong. God doesn't care about this. He's lost control or whatever. A few years ago, there was a rabbi, Harold Kushner, who wrote a book, became a, a runaway bestseller called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I think it was at the end of the 1970s. That book was on the bestseller list for weeks. And Kushner said this. He said he analyzed several human tragedies. I believe, as I recall, he'd had a personal tragedy and his wife, he and his wife lost a a child or something of that nature. And so he's dealing with tragedy and looking at the history of human tragedy, and he concluded that tragedy proves that God simply is not in control of everything. He said, you look around and God is obviously not sovereign. He concluded that God, and these were practically his exact words, God is merely a victim of evil like the rest of us. That theology is a recipe for despair. If God is not sovereign over life's tragedies, how can we possibly believe that He's able to work all things together for good? If things happen merely by chance, by accident, or if evil agents can overcome God's will and do things that thwart His sovereign plans, what assurance do we have ultimately that any of God's promises will be fulfilled. The truth is, nothing happens by accident. Jesus taught that, and, and he taught it expressly. He said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father. God even determines the utterly insignificant things of life, like the number of hairs on our head. Matthew 10, verses 29 and 30. 
Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, nothing is random. Nothing is left to chance. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of His own will. And I don't know about you, but God's sovereignty is a tremendous encouragement to me. I think a day doesn't pass that without my drawing some kind of encouragement from this truth. And the older I get, the more that's true. Because life doesn't get any easier the older you get. The trials become more and more numerous. And it's helpful to know that when this world seems like it's utterly out of control, it isn't. The doctrine of divine sovereignty guarantees that good will triumph over evil and God will destroy his foes. And in the end, his plans will be fulfilled perfectly. And for those who love God, no truth in Scripture offers more security or greater security than that. Isaiah believed strongly that God was absolutely in control of everything that happens. In fact, one of the great texts on this is in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah records Jehovah's own words. This is what God said to Isaiah. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. That passage is a powerful statement of God's absolute sovereignty over all of history. It doesn't mean merely that God is going to triumph in the end, but in the middle things, things are out of control. It means everything that is happening, God is in control of still. When it says He declares the end from the beginning, I think I've said this before, that doesn't mean He can tell the difference between the beginning and the end. Even I can do that. But what this means is that from the beginning of time, God declared exactly what the outcome of all things would be. And his plan is right on track even now. Did you realize that God wrote all of history in eternity past, before the foundation of the world? So that means the final chapter is already written in his book. He declared the end from the beginning. That's what this means. That's why nothing ever happens by accident, and nothing ever takes God by surprise. He has already planned everything that comes to pass. So this is the strongest possible statement about God's utter sovereignty. He absolutely guarantees that all His purposes will be established, and He will accomplish all His pleasure. And so every detail of everything that happens is in accord with the divine plan, right down to the number of hairs on your head. God says, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now notice, look at our passage again. That same expression, the good pleasure of the Lord, appears both at the beginning and the end of Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased. It's the pleasure of the Lord. The Lord was pleased to crush him, to putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That phrase, the good pleasure of the Lord, his eternal plan, 
That's saying this was placed in the hand of the suffering servant described in Isaiah 53, the outcome of God's eternal plan. Who is this servant in Isaiah 53? It's, obviously, it's Christ. And the opening phrase suggests that God's whole plan from eternity past to eternity future hinged on the event Isaiah was describing here, the suffering of Israel's Messiah. Everything before the cross looked forward to it. Everything after the cross looks back at it. So the cross, the crucifixion, was the apex of history. That's what makes this passage such a crucial one. Now, to understand why the cross was the apex of history, we need to turn to the second of the three doctrines we're concerned with this morning. First was the sovereignty of God. Now the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. That's what this passage is about, by the way. No passage in all of Scripture puts the meaning of the cross in clearer perspective than Isaiah 53. And one phrase here in the middle of verse 10 captures the whole essence of the chapter. It's this phrase. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He would render himself as a guilt offering. That's what the crucifixion was all about. The spotless, sinless, perfect Lamb of God offered himself up as an atonement for sin. This was the fulfillment of what all the sacrifices in the Old Testament pictured. He made himself a sin offering. Verse 9 says, He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. He was perfect. He was sinless. This is saying that. But he suffered in our stead. He took our sins on himself. Isaiah here is exploring, how can it be that this one who was perfect, in whose mouth there was no deceit, who never did anything wrong, how could it be that he would suffer such a violent death and this would please God? And the answer is, which Isaiah gives, he suffered for our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. He took our sins on himself. And in fact, notice how frequently Isaiah brings in the idea of substitution. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Verse 6, But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 8, He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. We deserve this. He didn't. He suffered in our stead. Verse 11, He will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So again and again in this chapter, we are told nine or ten times at least that Christ suffered on our behalf. He was our sin bearer. He was our substitute. He was a sin offering put to death on our behalf. He paid the awful price for our sin. That's what substitutionary atonement means. It's a simple concept. What was the price of our sin? Death condemnation, the wrath of God. All of that is wrapped up in Paul's statement in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. 
Christ did not deserve that, but he did it for us. When you grasp the meaning of this chapter, you can never again look at the cross with indifference. Yep, yep, absolutely right. I I hate to interrupt. Oh, man, this is, again, it's more of a lecture than a... um, uh, than a sermon. That, that being the case, though, still, this is just sound exegesis here. This is sound, Christ-centered exegesis, and notice how he's doing law and gospel. Uh, it, it, fine, fine job. Everything Christ suffered, he suffered willingly for us, on our behalf. And yet, he uttered not a single cry of protest. Isaiah says he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth, verse 7. And when he finally did cry out, it was not a curse against his killers. It was a plea to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's a clue, a strong clue, to what was actually going on on the cross. God did forsake Christ symbolically, judicially. And in fact, that was the real agony in the sufferings Jesus endured. We tend to think of the pains of the cross in light of that Mel Gibson movie where we see all sorts of physical tortures poured out on Christ. But you know what? The real suffering Jesus endured on the cross had nothing to do with the torment that was heaped on him by the hands of wicked men. That was symbolic of a greater thing that was taking place. It was a vivid picture, all the bloodshed and pain and agony of what was happening. But all the taunting and all the physical tortures Jesus endured were nothing compared to the wrath of God against sin. And what gave the cross its true meaning was not that men tortured Christ, but that God poured out his wrath on his own son. Yep. Look again at these shocking words from verse 10. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And that is, by the way, the literal meaning of the Hebrew expression here. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. It pleased God to crush his son? That's right. In what sense was God pleased? He was pleased by the redemption Christ purchased. He was pleased that so many sins were blotted out. He was pleased that His only begotten Son demonstrated His love for sinners. This was God's design all along. For our sake, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. You see, because God is righteous, because He is a holy God, and because He's just, He must punish sin. He can't simply absolve sinners from their guilt. God- I would even add to this argument. You know, the, the emergents are attacking this argu- argument. Uh, yes, God is just. However, you got to understand this. God has already said that if we do these things, He will punish us. If we break his commands, he will punish us. So God is true to his word. I mean, there is no lying or deceit on God's part. And so, yes, it's part of his nature, but we can even point to his word and basically say, if whereas he promises 
punishments for our sins. So it's he's true to his word and he's true to his nature. God's righteousness is such that he demands the most severe penalty for every single sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. That speaks of eternal death, separation from God, the fullness of God's wrath. That's the wages of sin. But the death of Christ totally satisfied God's righteous hatred of sin, Isaiah 53.11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. God was completely satisfied with his son's atoning work. That speaks of propitiation. That's a word we've used before. Remember that word? It's a biblical term, propitiation. It appears three times in the authorized version of the New Testament, Romans 3.25, 1 John 2, verse 2. And 1 John 4, verse 10. And as you know, that word propitiation simply means satisfaction. God was propitiated or satisfied by the death of His Son. God's anger was appeased. His justice was vindicated. His wrath was turned away. Christ endured the full weight of God's wrath in our place. And that's what we mean by substitutionary atonement. It's not a popular idea these days. And in fact, it, the attacks on substitutionary atonement in the past five years alone have been mind-boggling. The number of people who seemed at one point to be sound evangelicals who have turned against this doctrine and thus rejected the heart of the gospel message, it's astonishing, frankly, and frightening. There's a battle over this doctrine in the church today. But... If you take away this doctrine, you have no gospel at all. If the death of Christ was anything less than a guilt offering for sinners, a substitutionary atonement, no one could be saved. Because the only other alternative is that what Christ did was give us some kind of example to follow, and therefore the rest is all up to us. If he was our substitute, he's already paid it all. In Christ's own, own words, it is finished. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That's clear, isn't it? It may offend our sense of propriety. But Scripture recognizes that the gospel is a scandal. It is an offense. It's a stone of stumbling to people. But to those who know and understand what guilt means, it's the only hope for salvation. We need to lay hold of it. Now, the third doctrine we want to examine this morning is justification by faith. Look at verse 11. Justification by faith. If you're taking these notes... Just to repeat one last time, the sovereignty of God, substitutionary atonement, and now justification by faith. Look at verse 11, starting in the middle of the verse. If you're reading the New King James, it says this, By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I've been reading from the ESV, and it says it like this, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
Accounted righteous. That's the very idea of justification. Keep that expression in your mind. Accounted righteous. And we're going to come back to it. But first, notice that Isaiah links substitutionary atonement with the principle of justification. The two things are inextricably tied. That's one of the one of the serious theological problems you run into if you deny substitutionary atonement. You've got no basis for justification. And again, this is all in perfect harmony with what the Apostle Paul taught. In Romans 3, verses 24 through 26, Paul wrote that we are justified freely by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's that word again. A satisfaction of God's wrath or a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I've said this before, but I want to underscore it in your mind. Justification by faith is the most important doctrine of the Christian faith. It's the most distinctive and preeminent truth in the entirety of the gospel message. You've got to get this right or everything else falls apart. Justification by faith. And I find that too many Christians are blissfully ignorant of what it means. To justify someone is to declare that person fully righteous. In biblical terms, that's what it means. Somebody who's justified has been declared perfectly righteous. Justification is the polar opposite of condemnation. These are like courtroom verdicts. To declare someone guilty is to condemn the person. The person who is declared not guilty is justified. Scripture says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So think about what that's saying. It is strictly forbidden to declare a sinful person righteous and vice versa. And that's where the difficulty lies. Only one truly righteous person has ever lived, Christ. The rest of us are utterly guilty. Our hearts are corrupt and desperately wicked, Scripture says. We don't deserve to be declared righteous. As Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. <clears throat> Again, I, no critique here, just highlighting the fact He's doing law and gospel correctly, proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins, and proclaiming that we are justified by God's declaration that we're justified by grace through faith. And it's right there in Isaiah. Fine, fine job. We have turned every one to his own way. We are guilty. How can God declare us not guilty without compromising his own righteous. Because if a judge knowingly declares a guilty person not guilty, he'd say that's an unjust judge. And God's only standard is absolute perfection. Here's where it gets really sticky. Jesus said, therefore, you must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5:48. So it's not enough just to be innocent, devoid of guilt... We also must be righteous. In other words, we owe to the law perfect obedience. So just forgiving us of our sin doesn't really solve the problem even. 
That would just wipe the slate clean. And while it would be nice to have a clean slate, that's not what God demands. He gives us a hundred duties to fulfill. And if God's standard is that high, it's not enough just to be perfectly innocent. You have to be holy and fully righteous, rendering perfect obedience to all the law. If that's God's standard, we have no hope, right? And there's no way God can compromise the standard without tainting His own holiness, causing Himself to be unjust, or so it would seem. But here is how God solved the dilemma. Christ bore our sin. He paid the price for it. Look at verse 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Christ. In other words, our sins were imputed to Him. He was wounded for our transgressions. That's what this means. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His scourgings, we are healed. How are we healed? We're healed of our sin problem. We're healed of the guilt. In the same way, He took our sins on Himself and bore them and paid the penalty for them. His righteousness is imputed to those who believe. This is a legal transaction. That's what Isaiah is describing here. It's a transfer of credit. His perfect, flawless righteousness is credited to our account. Righteousness is reckoned to us, Paul says in Romans 4.11. Christ's own perfect, divine righteousness is put on our account, and we lay hold of that righteousness simply and only by faith. Remember, even if God overlooked our sin and absolved us of all guilt, if He gave us a blank slate, we would still be lacking any merit. Erasing our sins wouldn't put us where we need to be. Forgiveness isn't enough. We need an absolutely perfect righteousness. But remember the wording I read to you from the ESV, verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Accounted righteous. That's what the Hebrew word for justification means. Incidentally, it's also what the Greek word that's translated justification in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, the same thing that word means. Justification is a legal declaration. But it's much more than just a simple not guilty verdict. It declares that the sinner is not merely innocent, it declares him fully righteous. It credits him with the full obedience to the entire law of God, even though he's a sinner in reality who never kept a single commandment perfectly. But justification by faith overturns that. It means that all the virtue of Christ is imputed or credited to our account, just as our sins were imputed to his account, and he paid for them. A few minutes ago, I quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to that verse again. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's own perfect righteousness therefore becomes the ground on which we stand before God. God doesn't accept us because of any good thing in us. He accepts us solely because Christ's flawless virtue, all the merit of Christ's righteousness, is imputed to our account. And so without lowering the standard of absolute perfection, God can declare us righteous and accept us 
because of our union with Christ by faith. As Romans 3.25 says, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Isn't that an amazing truth? It's amazing to me that there's so much Christian theology in this Old Testament passage. You can see how this chapter utterly demolishes the idea that anyone in the early church tampered with Christian doctrine in order to import the idea of substitutionary atonement into it. Long before these doctrines ever found their way into the theology of the church, they were right there in the Hebrew Scriptures. And in fact, Isaiah 53 has so much Christian theology in it that it's no longer read in Jewish synagogues. It's true. They have a a set pattern of reading that they go through every week. Two portions are read from the Scripture. The first section comes from the Torah, the first five books of Moses. And the other portion is taken from the Haftarah, which is a collection of readings from the historical books and the prophets. And the readings follow a cycle that goes straight through the Torah in 52 readings and then begins again. And the readings start with the Jewish New Year in October. And the same passages are read every Sabbath in every synagogue in the world. And the pattern was established centuries ago and never changes. It doesn't matter if you go to the synagogue down the street here that sponsors bingo or to the Orthodox synagogue at the Western Wall in Jerusalem or to a tiny synagogue in some remote village in Siberia, you will hear exactly the same passages of Scripture read from the Hebrew Scriptures every, in, every, in every synagogue in the same order every week of the year. And sometime in the autumn of each year, the cycle of Torah readings reaches Deuteronomy 16. If you visit a synagogue on that particular Sabbath, the Haftarah reading, the other reading that you will hear, is Isaiah 51, verses, verse 12, through Isaiah 52, verse 12. Notice, the reading stops three verses before the end of chapter 52, right where I started. And then, if you go back to that synagogue on the following Sabbath, the, the next Haftarah reading begins at Isaiah 54, verse 1, and goes through verse 10. Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12, is always omitted. That's sad. The same pattern has been followed year after year for centuries in every Jewish synagogue in the world, and it ensures that Isaiah 53 is never read in the synagogues. What a tragedy that is. I call that a suppressing of truth. Because, as I said at the outset, this passage contains the heart of Isaiah's message. You might remember that when Philip encountered the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, the eunuch was reading this very passage. And Acts 8.30 says, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Philip explained the gospel to him out of Isaiah 53, and he was saved. As soon as the eunuch heard about Jesus, he recognized him as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That was all it took for him to be converted. Means of grace, converted through the gospel. That's exactly what happened to me. When I first saw this account, I recognized Christ. I also saw myself in this passage. 
You're there too. Yep. Here we are in verse 6. Hang on, this isn't going to be good. No, I'm, and I mean that in the sense that he's going to tell us about our own sins. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We deserve the wrath of God. Jesus didn't. Yep. And yet he bore it for us so that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Oh, this is so good. Lord, we're grateful, profoundly grateful for the truth of the gospel without which we would have no hope. Lord, give us stout hearts to resist the trend of our time where people want to tone down the gospel and eliminate the hard truth of Christ's crucifixion and your wrath against sin and our guilt, the hopelessness of it. We thank you for the answer the gospel gives to that problem. And I pray that if any here this morning have not put their faith in Christ, they would do so today by your grace and for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so that was uh, Phil Johnson, Pyromaniac's blog. The name of that uh, was The Atrocity That Pleased God. Fine exposition of Isaiah 53 as well as Psalm 22. And uh, what was it focusing on? Christ and him crucified for our sins. And uh, the problem that he experienced when he was growing up has not gone away. We have entire churches that are full of deniers, not believers. Uh, people who think that doubt equals faith, that uh, are offended by and uh, and deny that Christ died on the cross as our substitute, taking upon himself the punishment that we earned because of our sin. And then you have entire congregations where Jesus barely makes a cameo appearance Sunday after Sunday from the pulpit or stage or whatever it is that they're preaching from nowadays. And yet, this is the heart of the scriptures, this is the heart of the gospel, and this is the good news that we're called to proclaim to the whole world, to all nations, including the nation that you live in currently right now, whether that's in the United States, Great Britain, the Netherlands, South Africa, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Japan, uh, Egypt, just kind of going down the list of the people that are listening to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And this good news is for you. All we like sheep have gone astray. You and me and the whole world. Of the 6.5 billion people on the planet, there are exactly 6.5 billion sinners. And then the and then the ones being born now while we're talking, those all sinners in need of a savior, you and me and the whole world. And the good news is that Christ died for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement that brings us peace was upon him. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness and believe this good news. I can think of no more important message to highlight and bring to you day after day 
here at Pirate Christian Radio and here at Fighting for the Faith. And if you're growing and learning as a result of this, will you partner with us and join the Pirate Christian Radio crew? We're looking for a 1,000 of our listeners to join the Pirate Christian Radio crew. And by signing up, you are basically signing up to have a a small amount of money, $6.95 a month, uh, deducted from your account automatically. And uh, when we get to a 1,000 people, that will ensure the longevity of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio because it'll mean that at least on a monthly basis, the minimum amount necessary to pay all of our bills is taken care of. So will you join the Pirate Christian Radio crew? Will you be one of the 1,000 that, uh, that, that signs up and says, I'm going to support this radio outreach and this program? You can do so by visiting FightingForTheFaith.com and click on the Join Our Crew button. And if you'd like to uh, donate above and beyond that or a, a fixed amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button there or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I would love to get your feedback. You can email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for your sins. Amen. <laughs>